0: Connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now stay tuned for this week's message. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we are in a series entitled MART. And it's just a play on words. We're talking about the Gospel of Mark. We said this was going to carry us all the way through the summer. And we're just taking a look at uh, what John Mark wrote in his Gospel. And if you do the math, we're on the third week. So that means we're in Chapter 3. So if you would, grab the Bible, head over to Chapter 3 with us this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible reading that you're doing right now, if you're not studying the Word of God, I would encourage you. Uh, Every week, just open up the word of God, begin to read in the book of Mark with us. And and if you want just a tip, you could do this. Like if this is all new to you, this whole Jesus uh, church thing, I want to invite you next week, read the uh, chapter four in the book of Mark. Just read that, and if you get through it, start over again, just read it, and see if you can read it several times next week. And what will happen, I believe that anytime time we open up the Word of God and we begin to read it for ourselves, we're inviting the Holy Spirit to come in and do a work in our lives. And if you do that next week, then when you show up here and we open it up and we start to teach out of Mark chapter 4 next week, because that follows chapter 3, right? Uh, pretty easy. Uh, then I think that you're going to get even more out of it, because you've been reading it all week long. And so that's just a challenge uh, for, for those of you that are not in the Word to jump in there this, uh, with us this week. And so today, uh, before I get going, I want to remind you to ask anything up there on the screen. Uh, you don't have to memorize that number. It's going to stay up there the whole message. If you have any questions during this message, please text them to that phone number. It just comes in anonymously. We get it as pastors, and what we try to do is at the end of the message, get all of our pastors up here, and we'll answer any of those questions that you might have. And so please keep that in mind as we go through the message today. Uh, If you were not here a few weeks ago, I have to take you back to Mark chapter one, verse one, because I love the way John Mark wrote his gospel, because he doesn't play games. I told you before that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ on steroids, like he just goes right after it. And what's interesting is he tells you exactly why he's writing this book. He says it in verse one. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. And if you have any questions as you read through the book of Mark or as we teach, uh, you know, on this over the next several weeks, if you have any questions about why did he write that, I wonder why he would add that detail. I wonder why that story is recorded. All you have to do is just go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and it explains it to you. The whole reason why he's writing this book is that you would understand the good news about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And with that, I have to ask this question this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Do you believe that he came and died for your sins and rose again so you could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And not just by word, not just by saying, yeah, I believe that, but literally by, by in your life, he is the focus and, and everything flows out of that, like, like life is wrapped around Jesus, not Jesus being added to your life. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? I heard a story about a pastor in England, and he was ministering to a whole group of coal miners, and he asked one guy one day, he just brought him off to the side and said, tell me, what do you believe? And he said, well, I believe the same as the church. And so the pastor said, well, what does the church believe? And he said, well, they believe the same as me. And seeing that he wasn't getting anywhere, he finally just asked him, he said, well, what do you, what do you both believe? And he said, well, I guess we believe the same thing. (laughs) And I think as I asked this question this morning, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God? I believe many times we'll have people shake their heads and go, yeah, I do. But do you really? Can you articulate it? The transformation that's taking place in your life, how your life is centered around Jesus Christ, how you are a disciple of Jesus Christ because it should affect every area of your life. I've heard it said that if you don't live it, you don't believe it. And that is so true for the Christian faith. Now, this is all about our heart posture this morning. You're going to see this in chapter 3, and, and I believe you can break Mark chapter 3 into five different sections. It flows like this. Uh, the first section, verses 1 through 6, is about Jesus healing a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and it flows out of what we read last week. It's kind of an add-on because at the end of chapter 2, we see where Jesus says, I'm, I'm the Lord of even the Sabbath, right? Uh, And and then we roll into this story where he heals this man on the Sabbath. And then it rolls into a section where we get an insight picture as to how popular things are, uh, Jesus is becoming, how things are happening, and how the word is spreading. Because we see a large crowd gathering and where they're all coming from, which is an interesting detail in Scripture. And then verses 13 through 19, Jesus actually selects his 12 disciples. And then 20 through 30, Jesus is being accused of being under Satan's power. And then the last that takes us all the way to 35 is a story about his family coming to him. And Jesus tells us who his real family is. And so that's the way uh, chapter three plays out. And uh, let me just humble brag just for a minute on 27 people in here, because uh, there's 27 of you that went to Israel last month, and you got to see the place that we're getting ready to talk about. Uh, In this very first section, Jesus walks into the synagogue in Capernaum, which is clear in the north point of the Sea of Galilee, and he goes into the synagogue and he heals this man. We're getting ready to read it, but I want to show you a picture, because we were just there, and uh, as you can see there, there's a white synagogue built. That was actually built in the fourth century, but if you notice, just below that there's a whole line of black rock there. That's the original temple, the first century temple. That would have been the temple that Jesus would have walked into where this miracle actually would have happened. And many of you were there uh, just a month ago. And so, anyway, I just thought that was kind of cool. We're standing there. Here we are reading the text today. So, let's take a look at this. In Mark chapter 3, it starts off, it says, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies pause just for a minute. He's talking about the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And instead of calling them the Pharisees or the Sadducees, he just says the enemies. They're being referred to as the enemies now. It says, since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his what? Critics. So they're his enemies and now his critics. These were the religious leaders. These these were the Christians of their time, right? The Jewish religious leaders. It would be like you and I, if we get off track, we become the enemies and we become the critics of Jesus himself. Then he turned to his critics and he asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. Uh, the Sabbath was this day that they set off to the side. It was, uh, it was a day that they wouldn't work. It was set off solely, dedicated to God. It was was supposed to originally uh, for them to take a break, to rest, because that's what they were supposed to do. You know that if you just go too hard for too long, you get burned out. And God knew that because He created us. He designed us that way. And He took a Sabbath in creation. He took the seventh day off and rested, and He expected us to do the same thing. And so it was this day that was set aside that we were supposed to stop and and just foster our relationship with God, to to spend time with Him and to rest our bodies. And and, uh, what's interesting to me is that by the time we get to uh, when Jesus shows up on the scene, they've made it into an entire religion. Uh, Jesus asked the question, he says, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? And what he's referring to there is the difference between their written law and their oral law. See, God gave them the written law in the Old Testament, the Torah. They know they should observe the Sabbath, but what the Pharisees had done is they had been studying it and then asking the question, well, how does that play out? And can you do X, Y, or Z on the Sabbath? Or is that breaking the Sabbath? And they started writing all of this other law. Well, it actually became their oral law. There were 613 of them that they tacked on to the written law. And it became so burdensome that nobody could really keep the law. It's one of the reasons why Jesus came. And one of their laws, uh, so that They wouldn't break the Sabbath, said they had an oral law that actually made a provision for rescuing an animal that had fallen into a ditch on the Sabbath. So you're not supposed to work, can't pick anything up, can only walk so far, all these things on the Sabbath, because you have to keep it holy. So they they made all these laws and it turned, it instead of a relationship, it turned into a religion. It became very legalistic, and, and, but yet in that, they said, well, if, if one of your animals falls in the ditch, it's pretty important, so you can go ahead and break that. You can go ahead and do the work to get the animal up out of the ditch. And Jesus is holding a, a man's hand, not an animal, a man. And they're watching to see if he's going to heal him on the Sabbath because they're going to accuse him of breaking one of the oral laws of the Sabbath. And Jesus is asking a question, and they wouldn't answer him. And and verse 5, it says, He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. This word angrily is this word that means desire mixed with grief. Like his desire was that they would get it, that they would understand, like like you guys are the teachers of the law. You should know the heart behind the law and yet you're missing it. And there was this grief of you're not going to get this. You're going to harden your heart and you're going to miss the whole lesson. Jesus is like, I'm going to heal this guy on the Sabbath. Is it a day, you know, to save life or destroy it? Like you have a written law that says an animal can be rescued, but you're not going to let me heal the hand of this man? And, and the point he's making is that mankind is more important than an animal. It, it, we know that all the way back to Genesis, right? When God created uh, all the beings. He, he created the creatures of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and, and all of this. He creates everything. But then when he gets to man, it's a whole separate thing. Because he makes him in his own image, a mago day, he puts his thumbprint on that one, and then he breathes. It's ruah. He breathes life. He breathes spirit into this man. It's different than all of creation, because it's made in his image. And these religious leaders were missing it. Like they didn't get it. And before we go pointing fingers at them, we're doing the same thing today, aren't we? Like we take animals and we place them above human life. We're more worried about how many straws we're throwing in the ocean or make sure our eggs come from cage-free chickens. We gotta do that. But we'll run out and we'll legalize abortion as fast as we can. We'll, We'll subject our kids to this twisted ideology that is void of God. We're getting it backwards again. That's why it says in there that Jesus, his, he was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. This is a heart condition. It's a heart issue at the very core of what's happening here. And they won't answer Jesus, so he just gives them the answer. In verse 5, continuing, it says, Then he said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Hard hearts. These Jewish... Leaders go out and it's interesting because uh, the detail in scripture says they, they go out and they meet with the supporters of Herod and if you don't know who Herod is he's the ruler of the area he, he's of Jewish descent but he's a traitor to his people because he's working for the Roman Empire and, and these supporters of Herod are going to work with these Jewish leaders who are in fact th- they enemies of one another And yet they're working together. It says that they work together to plot how to kill Jesus. And and in no other place in scripture that I'm aware of, do we ever see these two ever agreeing on anything except for right here. And it was to kill Jesus. You want to talk about hard hearts, right? And for what? For healing a man's hand on the Sabbath. Luke chapter 6 tells this story as well. And in that story, it says that they are wild with rage. It gives this idea of mindless anger. Like they don't even know why they're angry, they're just ticked off at Jesus and they want to take his life. In verse 7, it turns a corner because Jesus leaves Capernaum, and it's very interesting because he's been in Capernaum this entire time, and and, um, now because they're plotting to kill him, he leaves Capernaum and he begins to work his way down the Sea of Galilee. And what's interesting is, I don't know why he does it, maybe it's because it's open, and if there's a plot to take his life, they can see it sooner, or or maybe it's because uh, he needs more space to accommodate all the crowds. I don't know why, but he leaves Capernaum at this point. And we start to see all the ministry that happens along the Sea of Galilee. It says in verse 7, Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edume, from uh, east of the Jordan River and even from as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide. The vast numbers of people came to see him. Uh, Again, one of those details in Scripture I just love because it lends validity to how we can trust Scripture. But they begin to name these places where all these people are coming from. Uh, Edom is actually 100 to 120 miles south of where they're talking about. That's a long trip. Uh, Sidon, 60 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And keep in mind, all of these people are traveling in to see Jesus because the word has spread about him and they're coming in to see him and hear his teaching and they're bringing with them people who are sick and lame and paralyzed and demon-possessed and they're traveling a long distance. This is way before Southwest Airlines, right? Like they're having to walk and if they're lucky, they're riding something, but how long would it take you to travel 120 miles to go see somebody? And and where would your heart be? Like, what would have to happen for you to to make that that trip? The hearts are open. They want to hear his teaching. They want to see the miracles, these signs that he is who he says he is. It's all about Jesus at this point. Um, Do you know something similar to that is happening even right here? It's amazing to me every Sunday when I get cards turned in and and I I write handwritten notes to first-time guests and things like that, and it's amazing to me where they all come from. Like, we have families here that you guys live north on Tower Road, like way up by Reunion, and you travel out here every week. Uh, There's some of you that are coming as far as you go. Um... We've got families from Elizabeth that travel in here every week. We've got families from Kingsburg and Lock Bowie that travel all the way down here. I met a guy who's been coming for a long time. He's been flying under the radar, and he finally came up and met me. And he said, oh, I've been coming for about six months. And I'm like, well, where, where do you live? And he said, Woodrow. Do you know where Woodrow's at? you got to look that one up. Like, that's way out east. Um, he's driving in here every day. We had a, a family in here from Sterling last week. Why? It's not, not because of this, it's not because of preaching, it's not because of, of the music, it's not, it's not because of the children's programs, even, even though we brag on them all the time, it's not that. Do you know what it is? It's because people are looking for truth. They're looking for Jesus. Jesus. And I believe that if we're a church that preaches the gospel and we stay firm to the scriptures and we give them the truth about Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, then I think people are drawn to where Jesus is the focus, where he is the center. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus, and it'll always be only about Jesus. These people are coming from everywhere to see Jesus and then in verse 9 it says Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowds would not crush him that's how many people were showing up he had healed many people that day and all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him and whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him shrieking you are the son of God but Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was these demons, they they have this supernatural knowledge of who Jesus is. They know. Even though the people there are trying to figure it out, the demons know. They know exactly who he is. And Jesus keeps them from declaring who he is. And if you've been here for the last two weeks, let me just ask the question, because you should know, why does he keep the demons from announcing who he is? There you go. It wasn't his time yet. It's not his time yet. And that will be your answer a lot through the book of Mark. It's not his time yet. He doesn't want the best testimony coming from the demons. Like he's working on the people. He wants the people to believe, but yet their faith is in the seedling stage. They're just starting to get there where they start believing. And he's got a lot of work to do. He knows he's got a lot of work to do before he can go to the cross. And he's got a whole bunch of people plotting to kill him. And if they came out and said, you're the Messiah, you're, you're the prophesied one, they would have probably tried to kill him right there. And Jesus keeps him from revealing his identity because it's not his time yet. And then Jesus goes on to select his 12 disciples in verse 13. It says afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came with him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. Simon, whom he named Peter, Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him, 12 disciples. And if you'll just allow me to geek out for a minute, okay, Um, this might be just for one person in the room, that's okay. Uh, I just love these details about Scripture, We're given the list of his 12 disciples, and and not just that, but there's something else that shows up in this text that I absolutely love. It's called disambiguation. And it's one of those things that you see all through Scripture. When they talk about people or they talk about locations, you're given more information about it so that you know that they're not just making this up. This is a specific place or it's a specific person. And let me give you uh, just kind of an example. Uh, A disambiguator for a person would be something like their father's name or, or maybe their profession or the place of origin. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, right? But what's interesting is that one of the most popular Palestinian Jewish male names during the first century was Simon. And every time you read Simon in Scripture, they tell you which Simon they're talking about. It would be like you and I having a conversation. I said, hey, did you get to talk to John this week? And your response would be, which John? Yeah, what are you talking about? There's lots of Johns around, right? And I'd have to say, you know, uh, the, the one that lives north of Bennett there, he's got that big farm, and you'd be like, oh, yeah. Oh, John Anderson. Yeah, that's who that is, right? And that's, that's a disambiguator is what that is. And, and here, we see every time Simon comes up, we're given a disambiguator. Uh, Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, we get Simon the Leper, we get Simon of Cyrene. It, it's all of these disambiguators that, that lend to the credibility of Scripture, that speaks to its truthfulness. Uh, same thing with Mary. Mary was a very popular name. So we have Mary of Magdalene. We, we have uh, the mother of James and Joseph Mary, right? We have these disambiguators that actually lend to the credibility of Scripture. Jesus chooses his 12, and although it's only a few verses, I think this is one of the most critical moments in Jesus' ministry. He's choosing the 12 that would be in his close circle, that would be the influencers that he would be able to, to pour into. And it's so important, in fact, that when this story is told in Luke chapter 6, it says that Jesus goes up on the mountain and it adds that he prayed to God all night before he made his selection. Young people, let me just ask you this. Have you ever prayed to God that God would reveal to you who your inner circle needs to be? Maybe that's why we're in some of the condition that we're in, right? Right? We're doing a horrible job of choosing the people that we're going to have closest to us. And I, I don't mean, you know, love. You can love everyone. We should. I'm talking about the people that you let into your inner circle. Those who are going to be confidants. The ones that are going to disciple you or you're going to disciple. Have you prayed about that and let God reveal those things to you? Uh, Jesus has many disciples. He teaches all of them. But it's these 12 that he prayed about all night and chose and brought into his inner circle that he invests in, that he pours out his plan to. He tells them exactly what's going to happen and he does it in plain English, even though many times he gives it to the other people in parables. He tells them straight up what's going to happen. He instills his character in each of them. I think it's interesting that Jesus, even with all the popularity, and you just saw it, people are coming in from everywhere to hear him, just to touch him. Even with his popularity, Jesus realized the only way to change the world was to invest heavily in just a few people. I, I say that because that's discipleship at its best. And I also say it because I know there's some of you sitting here that you think you can't have an impact in the kingdom. Well, I'm nobody. I don't, I don't really have a whole lot of influence. I don't have a title or a position where I can really influence things for Jesus. And I, You think that you can't have an impact, and Jesus shows us the greatest way to change this world is to pour yourself into just a few people. So you know what question I'm going to ask. If you've been around here a couple of months, you know what question I'm going to ask. Who's your discipler? And who are you discipling? Who is it that when when you're struggling in your walk with Christ, or if you're digging in scripture and you don't understand some, something, who is it that you call? Who's discipling you and pouring into you and growing you up in your faith? And then who are you passing that along to? Who are you discipling that that you're trying to raise them up and teach them how to follow Christ? You should have names to both of those, at least one to each, if not more. We need to follow Jesus' example. It worked. How how can I say that? Because built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, 11 of those men would go out and they would start a church that would change the world that is still going strong 2,000 years later. That's why you're here. Because Jesus chose 12 and decided to pour into them. Now, we get to verses 20 through 35, and this is an interesting section because in the book of Mark, we haven't been able to talk about this yet, but this is the first time it shows up. Um, John Mark does something interesting when he's writing. He uses a technique that's been referred to as a Markian sandwich. And he'll like sandwich two stories together or maybe three stories together. And the idea is um, one story within another story. It just serves as a purpose of giving both stories a greater meaning. And and it's called a marking sandwich because it looks like this. It has like the bread on top and then right in the center is the meat. And then there's bread underneath. But it's that center section, which is where the gut punch comes from. That's where the, the lesson comes from. And we see that right here. And and you're going to see it starting in verse 20. Jesus' family shows up. They come to get him. And then the religious leaders accuse Jesus of something. And it's his response that we want to pay attention to. And then at the end, it talks about how his family continues to come to him. And then Jesus tells them who his real family is. And so let's take a look at this. In chapter, I'm sorry, verse 20 it says one time jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat when his family heard what was happening they tried to take him away he's out of his mind they said at this point in jesus ministry his ministry was all about he chose 12 he's trying to teach them and bring them up you got crowds pressing in. They're all wanting a piece of Jesus. They're trying to touch him. Um, so much so that he didn't even have time to eat is what this uh, verse says. And then he's got a whole other thing going on because he's got um, two groups of people plotting to kill him on the outside of that. And so all this is happening. And in the middle of all of this chaos, his family gets wind of all of it and they come to take him. And, and apparently they don't believe right now. Now James, one of his half-brothers, will later on believe in him. He'll actually go on to be one of the leaders in the church. He'll write the book of James that that we have in our canonized Bible. And so he would later on believe. But right now, at least in this moment, it doesn't seem like any of his family believes. And you can almost hear the family standing outside the house and saying, all right, this charade, it's gone on long enough. Enough of this. All this activity and all this popularity has made you kind of crazy. We need to take you back home and we need to knock some sense into you, right? Like this is family speaking here. And yet before they can get to Jesus, the Pharisees speak up. Take a look at this in verse 22. It says, but the teachers of religious law who had arrived from where? Jerusalem. Yeah. So now we're playing with the big hitters, right? Like, like the guys in Jerusalem at the temple. We got, we got the big guys now traveling all the way to the north to the Sea of Galilee because the word of Jesus has spread so much and they're coming to confront Jesus. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. He's possessed by Satan. That's how he's casting out demons. And Jesus responds by telling him some stories. He's like, hey, uh, kingdom divided by civil war is going to fall. And, and a family that's splintered by feuding, uh, it's going to fall. There, there's no way they can make it. Satan can't be divided by himself. There, there's no, that doesn't make sense. Like your argument doesn't hold water. And then he says, I'm going I'm to explain it a little bit further. And he tells this cool little story about a strong man in his own house. Who can go in and plunder his house? Only somebody stronger than him. Do you know what he's talking about? Do you know who is the strong man in this example that Jesus is using? Satan, yeah. And Jesus is saying, look, it's gonna take somebody stronger than him that goes in, binds him up, and plunders his house. Now think about it this way. This is the other thing. As you dive into this a little bit deeper, you find out Jesus is saying, look, I'm the one. I'm the one that's strong enough to go in to the house and bind up the strong man i'm going to bind up satan and i'm going to take his plunder now here's the really cool part you ready for this what is satan's plunder what's he doing he's trying to steal you and me from our creator god who gave his life and loves us and and rose again who wants a relationship with us he's trying to steal us away from this god the plunder that he's talking about is you it's me and Jesus says, look, Satan is the strong man, but I'm the one who's going to bind him up, and I'm going to take you back to be my own. Now, Jesus is standing right in the middle of this whole scene. These, uh, th- these Pharisees are accusing him of being under the influence of Satan's power, and he makes this statement. And, and in essence, he's saying, look, I am he. Look at the, all the signs. Look at what I've been doing so that you might believe that I am the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, and yet you're missing it. You're missing it. They were rejecting who Jesus is. They were fighting against this, on, uh, this upcoming kingdom that God was going to create through Jesus Christ. They were, they were rejecting the power of God himself in this moment. Jesus has drawn a line in the sand, and he's saying, you got to choose which side are you on. Uh, this verse, in verse 29, it says, But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. Um, we, we need to stop. I feel like we just need to kind of explain that just for a little bit. Because when I grew up, I grew up in traditional church. And I was always under the impression, uh, when you talk about Christian theology or within church circles, this was always the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin is the way we talked about it in hushed Voices, Right? And and the reason for that is because I I misunderstood it. When I was a kid, I used to think it was a word that you would say, like you would utter something against the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden you were out and there was nothing you could do to be made right again because it's unforgivable, right? And when you dive into scripture, you start finding out that that it's not about taking God's name in vain. It's not about saying something. It's not about a word that you say against the Holy Spirit. Uh, So let me answer it this way. And just by asking the question, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy. Because we're talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. So what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, blasphemy, uh, blasphemy just means the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. That's what that means. So when you're blaspheming, you are, uh, you're in the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. But we're talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So the question then becomes, well, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit has a role in every believer's life. We've just talked about this recently. The Holy Spirit is the one that, that divvies up the spiritual gifts to be used within the body, right? The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts us when we're doing wrong. He's the one that encourages us. He directs us and guides us. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But what's the role of the Holy Spirit in an unbeliever's life? Well, it's simply to reveal Jesus. To draw them back to god Uh, the role of the holy spirit in an unbeliever's life is to awaken them to their need of a savior and if it's not for the holy spirit we would never know to come back to jesus we would never be called back to forgiveness and that's the role and so when we blaspheme the holy spirit what are we doing we're rejecting his work And so if you think about it this way, when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we reject the work of the Holy Spirit by um, rejecting the truth that the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal to us about Jesus Christ. We deny who Jesus is. What were the religious leaders doing in that moment? They were rejecting who Jesus was. He was on scene. He was teaching. He was was doing miracles. He He was giving them signs as to who he was. And they had already hardened their hearts and rejected him. Now, it's not what comes out of your mouth, but it's about what's in your heart. That's where blaspheming the Holy Spirit comes from. Uh, Let me say it this way. The only sin that can't be forgiven is the sin of rejecting Jesus, rejecting his offer of forgiveness and a new life. See, when I was growing up, I used to think I would say something or utter something against the Holy Spirit, and I couldn't be forgiven. And then I started thinking about, wait a minute the cross is bigger than that, right? Like if I've been forgiven of my sins yesterday, today, and forever, then the cross is bigger than that. Then I, then I can't accidentally say something and, and I get up to heaven and God's like, sorry, you remember that thing? No, I don't remember it. Well, you did it, so you're out. That's not the way that it works. Uh, the only sin that can't be forgiven is the one that you will not allow God to forgive you for. You reject him, you turn away from him, He's already done the work. He went to the cross. He gave his life. He rose again. And he stands there and he offers this forgiveness. He offers new life to you. And it is up to us whether we receive it or not. That's why this is a heart issue. Because if our hearts are open and we are able to receive um, the Holy Spirit revealing to us who God is, then in that moment I pray that we receive that gift from Jesus. We accept forgiveness. We pursue him. But unfortunately, so many people have hardened their hearts that the Holy Spirit has continued to draw them closer to Jesus and they just reject it and they reject it and they reject it. I liken it to an alarm clock. I have an alarm clock that I, next to my, my bed. It's real close to my head and it goes off at a certain time. And when it goes off, I found that I just have to get up out of bed when that thing goes off because if I don't, here's what I do. I reach over and I hit the snooze button, right? And then what does it do? It goes for five minutes or whatever, and then it goes off again. You know what I do then? I hit the snooze button again. And then pretty soon, that thing's screaming, and I can't even hear it because I've hit the snooze button so many times. And then I'm woke up by my wife yelling at me, why don't you get up? Your alarm's been going off for 30 minutes, right? Um, So it's one of those things where if you hit the snooze button so many times, pretty soon you can't even hear it. And I think that's the same way with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is trying to draw all of us to Jesus Christ and so many of us have hit the snooze button so many times we've rejected that and our heart gets harder and harder and harder. It's this hardening of our heart over time where we get to where we just completely reject Jesus. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And blaspheming the Holy Spirit is saying that the Holy Spirit's witness of Jesus is a lie or his evidence of Jesus is a lie. And without such evidence, there can be no valid faith. And we know from Ephesians 2.8, it says we're saved by grace through faith. It requires faith. Without faith, there is no forgiveness of sin. What leads us to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to this unforgivable sin? Well, when I think through it, I would say the biggest one is probably pride. We're just too proud. We're smarter, we know better, and we just reject it. What does it take to soften our hearts? It takes humility. It takes humility. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before the fall, or pride goes before the destruction. And guess what? If we reject the Holy Spirit, if we keep hitting that snooze button, and then we tune him out completely, then we're at a place where we can't be forgiven because we will not allow God to forgive us. That's the meat of this Morgan Sandwich. It goes on with this other piece of bread in verse 31. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and brother my sister and my mother and to that we say thank you jesus right because those of you that didn't hit the alarm that didn't hit the snooze button that opened up your heart and allowed the holy spirit to prompt you and lead you to jesus and you got to the place where you declared yes jesus is the messiah he is the son of god I am a sinner and I need forgiveness and I need a savior. Those of you that did that, it says right here that you are Jesus' brothers and sisters. I mean, I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. That's so incredible that we could be called his brothers and sisters, that we could be part of God's family. And don't miss, uh, mistake what Jesus is saying here. He's not dis- disrespecting his family at all. He's, he's just exalting those who, have accepted him as Lord and Savior, who hear and obey the word of God. That's what he's doing. And so let me ask you one more time the question from the very beginning of the message. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? So, I believe some of you in here would say, absolutely. And you would be able to tell why. You could articulate what he's done in your life and through you, how he's transformed your life from the inside out. You could do that. And for that, I praise God. But some of you, you would have to say, you know, I'm struggling. I'm here. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm seeking truth, but I'm not there yet. And I would say, keep coming. Keep digging into the word of God. Keep meeting with people and and look for a discipler. Have somebody help you as you you are on this path to find out who Jesus is. But please, please, don't harden your heart. Because that's the game changer. Soften your heart, be humble, and Christ will meet you right where you're at. I love what Jesus said to his disciples after he rose again. He said, you believe because you have, you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. My prayer is that not a single one of you would leave this morning without opening yourselves up to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, that you would soften your hearts and that through that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you and uh, we praise you for 2,000 years that, that you have given us your word and we can, we can open it up. We can find out more about you and what you have for us and Lord, I, I thank you for the fact that you um, have sent your Holy Spirit to draw each and every one of us closer to you. Lord, I pray for those who today could say absolutely. I, I know Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and I pray that you would just continue to to build them up, grow them up, mold and shape them into people that look more and more like you. And God, for those who are struggling, maybe those who have not yet made that declaration, I pray that, um, that they wouldn't harden their hearts, that they would seek you with an even greater fervor, and that you would meet them right where they're at. And God, I pray that um, you would continue through your Holy Spirit to draw us closer to you and to build your kingdom, Lord. We pray all of this brings glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. And all all God's people agreed and said, Amen. amen.